0: Achtung, Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA USA. Uh, with me, Al Murray. Yeah, absolutely. Here we go Uh, with uh, me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we are for these um, uh, these American editions um, uh, uh, for this series, for this open ended season. uh, Who are we joined by, Jim?
1: Well, I mean, he's joining us a little bit late in the whole procedure, isn't he? About kind of two and a half years in um (laughs) (laughs) it is of course the brilliant
2: Uh,
1: (laughs) i know but it was just too obvious it was too easy (laughs) 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 uh we're joined by the brilliant uh friend of the show friend of both of us um john mcmanus and john um vilcommon
2: yes welcome aboard john well, thanks. I'm late for everything. I know. I know. So it's just great <laughs> to be a part of this with you guys. Uh, thanks so much for doing it. Now, we thought to, to get started, we, we'd talk
0: about the Gaijin Shogun himself, Dugout out dug, the big chief. Um, and in fact, someone that we've touched on along the way in the uh, way of ways to make you talk, the the, the British edition of this, of this podcast, but have never actually got to grips with with Proply, which which is of course Douglas MacArthur, who's probably the biggest figure in the U.S. war effort. Full stop. Arguably, certainly within the services, is that is that a, a good opening contention?
2: Well, in the Pacific, absolutely, and he would have thought of himself as like the Zeus of the theater. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> here is see, I think this is the place to start with uh, MacArthur, who, who's I often say, you know. On a good day, his ego might have fit inside the Grand Canyon, maybe, uh, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what you guys, I think, will find this interesting. This is what his British liaison officer, who was attached to uh, to SWAPA, Southwest Pacific Area Headquarters, this is what he wrote about him, I think quite insightfully. And he said, uh, he is shrewd, selfish, proud, remote, highly strung, and vastly vain. He has imagination, self-confidence, physical courage, and charm but no humor about himself, no regard for truth, and is unaware of these defects. His mistakes He mistakes his emotions and ambitions for principles. With moral depth, he would be a great man. As it is, he's a near miss, which may be worse than a mile. His main ambition would be to end the war as a Pan-American hero in the form of Generalissimo of the Pacific theaters. And I, I mean, I just think I've never heard like a succinct synopsis of MacArthur uh, better written or spoken than that that's just brilliant i think but but john i mean he he he's a massive name even before world war 2
1: breaks out isn't he i mean he's a, he's been the chief of staff he's he's you know he's a huge figure already he's he's kind of very wedded to the philippines of course which is uh um a kind of an outpost of the of the usa in the 1920s and 30s
2: you know he's not a shrinking violet before the war begins Oh, absolutely. And that is the thing that's unique about him versus any other theater commander. He was once chief of staff of the U.S. Army. Uh, And so how does this happen? Well, you know, he 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 was young as Army chief of staff. He was in his early 50s. So when he retires, basically in the mid 1930s, um, he's invited to the Philippines, which Congress in 1934 had passed an act saying we're going to give the Philippines its independence in 1946. So uh, MacArthur is invited there by his old friend Manuel Quezon to basically stand up the armed forces for what's going to be a new country. And, and so he's he's like this field marshal of the Philippines, but it's a very hollow army. Um, you know, be, I mean, think of it this way: I mean, this is a, an archipelago with 17,000 islands. You've got Incredible diversity (laughs) of cultures, of languages, you know, all of this stuff. So imagine, you know, it's in a, the army is like a National Guard style army that he's setting up. So think of you've got a local unit, a platoon of about 40 guys, say, you might have five or six languages represented in that platoon. I mean, how in the world can you organize anything that way, much less the weaponry problem and and equipment problem? So MacArthur's been working on this in the late 30s. Sounds a
1: bit like the Indian Army, to be honest, but.
2: John, just to sort of go back a little bit. I mean, I mean, it
1: becomes American right at the end of the 19th century or beginning of the 20th century. I can't quite remember, right? But but doesn't MacArthur go over and join his his old man? I mean, isn't his father over in the Philippines? What have yeah, I got that exactly, wrong? Exactly. Yes, and they're yeah, kind of no, cut from exactly the same right. cloth
2: because he was pretty arrogant too, wasn't he? He was, but no one was in Douglas's category in that regard. I mean, he, he, he went way beyond his dad. Um, yeah, the interesting thing is that you know the the American presence of the Philippines is an offshoot of the Spanish American War in 1898, because Spain had controlled the That's Philippines right. as a colony for hundreds of years, and of course the Filipinos were restive, especially uh, the Tagalog speakers on Luzon, who were really the elite of the country. And Luzon is, their independence. is And Luzon is the
1: island on which Manila sits,
2: isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Often called the main island, though, I'm sure others would, you know, throughout the Paracapelico would descend from that. But it is the dominant island is maybe the way to say it. And so the Americans are there working with them against the Spanish in 1898. But it's very uncomfortable because on the horizon is, well, will the Americans give us our independence? So President McKinley at that point makes what I would argue is one of the most fateful decisions in American military history in that he decides to remain there as a basically a colonial overseer, which then initiates the Philippine-American War. Americans often call this, I got to say this, Americans often call it the Philippine Insurrection I mean, what do you think about when you think of an insurrection? What is that?
0: Well, that, 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 yes, that's uh, Star Wars. It's an uprising against an evil empire, isn't it?
2: It's, it's a rebellion, right? <laughs> right it's a yeah, rebellion, exactly. you know, against yeah. some sort of internal <laughs> rebellion. Well, yeah. the Philippines then—that that, presupposes the Philippines are somehow America's, you know. So, so I often call it the Philippine American War, and it really—it's—it's it's actually quite interesting on a lot of levels, but it's a counterinsurgent war. Uh, And contrary to, I think, a lot of popular belief in which the idea is, well, insurgencies always prevail, actually they don't. And this one didn't. And the Americans ultimately gain colonial control. So MacArthur's father, Arthur, who was a Civil War hero who had uh, earned a Medal of Honor for bravery in the Civil I War. I mean, that in itself uh,
1: is, is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Oh, it
2: is. And, and the battle that he that he's part of for this, the Missionary Ridge Battle, is just incredible in 1863. And uh, yeah, so Arthur MacArthur is really fascinating on a lot of levels. And so here he is 30-some-odd years later as a, as a general, as the American commander in the Philippines. And um, so right there, you see this very powerful bond established between the MacArthur family and the people of the Philippines. Douglas graduates West Point in 1903. His father was not a West Pointer. Uh, Douglas graduates in 1903. And yes, his first posting is the Philippines as an engineer officer. And it's one of many tours he will serve. And he becomes just, of course, uh, you know, a great friend of the Philippines and, and has a bond. And he really kind of thinks of it as home by the late 1930s, because it has been. Yeah. Uh, so the war is very personal to him in the Philippines. So the, so on appointing him, they're friends, aren't it's it, they're friends, aren't they? They're
0: pals. It's who would get the job, isn't it? It's not a question of him being shuttled off there by the American military establishment mm. to get him out of people's hair. Because after all, getting in people's hair is part of his speciality.
2: It, it is, it, 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 I know. isn't it? <laughs> it is, well, it... Part of it is getting rid of him in the sense of, you know, Roosevelt, he, he did not get along very well with President not- Roosevelt when he was Army Chief of Staff. So they were happy to see him go to the Philippines. If they'd really want him to continue in Washington, they probably would have made that happen. Yeah. So they're kind of just happy to, to move him over onto the margins there to oversee <laughs> what is, I, I won't say a hopeless job, but it really Difficult because I mean, basically, this the US Congress isn't even willing to arm its own formations properly in the late <laughs> <Yeah>. 1930s, <laughs> yeah. much yeah. less Filipinos yeah. who might eventually turn those guns on the Americans before we would want them to. And, you know, if, they, if you didn't get the independence before they wanted. So, uh, so MacArthur's dealing with a really difficult job by the end of the 30s.
1: But but the point but is he's 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 already at retirement age. This is this is a kind of sort of post retirement. Yes, he's old, isn't he? You know, yeah. he's left the army. He's got his management consultancy role with, you know, McKinsey's or whatever. I mean, that that's a, that's the sort of equivalent. I mean, you know, let's not forget he graduates out of West Point in 1903. His dad's in the freaking Civil War. I mean, right. he's 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 a notch older than all the other senior commanders of World War II. Oh, isn't? he definitely is.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's already been through his career and he had served in World War One, uh, you know, as uh, yeah. in the 42nd Division as a brigade commander, as, as division chief of staff, had this very valorous kind of career there. He had been superintendent at West Point at a very young age of 39. Yeah, he'd kind of had his career. So he's he's going to be age 60 in 1940. And, you know, certainly that's older than than eventually most of his peers are going to be. Um, so. He's recalled to, to active duty in the summer of 1941 when, you know, war with Japan is obviously imminent. Uh, but even then, you know, he, he's presiding over what I would argue is a unique army in American history. It's a colonial style army, almost in the British model, because it's mostly locals. Yeah.
1: And and, and the problem is, is when you have a kind of um, a colonial style army, which is there primarily to do kind of policing and, you know, keep the order and all the rest of it, which which is absolutely the case with the kind of British colonial forces in, say, Malaya or Singapore, it tends not to go terribly well when you come up against troops, you know what they're doing. And, of course, that's pretty much exactly what happens, isn't it?
0: And what, John, what's his relationship with... Uh, Marshall like at the point where he has to be <laughs> sort of reactivated because because after all you know he's been superseded by people who who he's had disagreements with and and have replaced him in his generation essentially because there's a generational handover occurs with Marshall and Marshall bringing his people in bringing Ike, his crew in with him in 1939. What's what's his relationship with Marshall like? Is it uh, is it uh, and is Marshall <laughs> not Mar- is good. Marshall well is but is Marshall reactivating <laughs> MacArthur with a heavy heart or or out of sheer yeah, necessity really or, or you know or, or yeah, actually it's the best guy he's the guy on the ground we'll have to go with him
2: well i, th- I you know macarthur was succeeded by malin craig initially and he was okay yeah. with that got along fine but if you were to ask macarthur in 1939 <laughs> when and you'd say who is the last officer you want appointed to be army chief of staff i'd be willing to bet george marshall would either be the choice or certainly on the list um, because they had had a checker passed when MacArthur was chief of staff. He had tried to basically demolish and destroy Marshall's career by moving him as a Lieutenant Colonel to a national guard unit, which would have been thought of as a dead end in those days. And uh, fortunately for MacArthur, Marshall was not the vindictive type. Um, So once he comes chief of staff, he knows that he's going to need MacArthur in the event of war uh, but but Mar- it's really interesting when you look at uh, a lot of Marshall's communications with his various theaters commanders during World War Two, he deals with MacArthur quite differently than he does with the others, many of whom, like you said, Al, had been protégés, like most notably Eisenhower, of course, um, he deals with MacArthur on a kind of wary Sort of equal level, while also trying to to kind of stave off <laughs> MacArthur's worst excesses. Um, and in the course of the war, um, not Marshall, but MacArthur uh, is often very paranoid about Marshall sabotaging him. And he 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 really MacArthur often in the course of the war burdened himself with uh, Robert Eichelberger, who's who's really his finest ground commander. And he would he would tell him, you know, this is the working of, of George Catless Marshall, and you know, sabotaging us and doing this and that and the other thing, and other men and. Washington DC and uh it was it was really very revealing on how MacArthur viewed Marshall too
1: um but John I mean just just uh, on the cop I mean and, and his character and stuff I mean we know he's vain and all those kind of things but he's also a modernist isn't he I mean he goes around in aviator shades um you know he looks up up to date with his kit and the way he wears his cap and you know, embraces modern technology and all that kind of stuff. He's well read, isn't he? He's got this library and this apartment at the top of the hotel that he lives in in Manila, and you know, so he's he's <laughs> kind of well read, isn't he? Or is is that all a bit oh, kind yeah. of pretentious? Or is that for show? It's not for show. He he genuinely is. I mean, he's he's a bright guy, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he is. I mean, I, I think that by any measure, he's intellectually brilliant, and so yes, that makes him well read. It makes him. Uh, a deep thinker on a, on a lot of levels, certainly he has uh, he has much to recommend in terms of his strategic acumen and, and all that. Um, you know, when we're talking about the early stage of the war, he's in a learning environment. The training wheels are on in a, in a way because he, he's not working well with his naval and air commanders. And yet later in the war, he will. Part of it is personality. So many it's whether somebody can deal with MacArthur and vice versa. Uh, so the example I like to give, and it's a really fascinating insight, I think, the, the guy who commanded the naval forces in the Philippines in 1941 and 42, kind of alongside MacArthur, MacArthur didn't necessarily control him, was Admiral Tommy Hart. And um, he doesn't have much of a fleet, but it could be, could be uh, you know, sort of potent against the Japanese at times. But the dynamic there that I think is sometimes overlooked MacArthur had actually an older brother who was a naval officer who was also had a kind of rocketing career. And he dies in 1921 of appendicitis, of all things. Just mind blowing, you know, that this could happen. I think he was a a commander or a captain at that point. Um, And he had been friends with Hart. And so to Hart, MacArthur was, uh, you know, just sort of his buddy's, you know, full of it, younger brother. Um, And so there was always that kind of weird dynamic there. And so MacArthur came to feel that Hart and the Navy had kind of betrayed him at uh, in the Philippines in 1942, which I think is unfair, but that's how he viewed it. And and so he has very difficult relations with the Navy until he meets Halsey, Admiral Halsey. And and by the way, speaking of fathers, their fathers had known each other uh, because Halsey was another military legacy. Right. Uh, which was a tendency of a lot of these guys, and but these two get on, so, don't
1: they? Halsey and MacArthur kind of big just time. mutual respect, and, and 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 that's the kind of the marriage that works.
0: I mean, this it, is striking. Yeah. The striking, though, John, about how small the American military establishment seems to be in lots of ways. That 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 you know, we, we we think of America. You know, from here, from the UK perspective, we think of America as a large country with you know with the with the t- t- uh, with all sorts of different centres to it and all this sort of stuff, and. And Britain is the little country where everyone's connected to everyone else, and everyone's <laughs> married to everyone else, and yeah. they all went to school together. But the but the notion that you know people's brothers and fathers figure in how the interpersonal relationships work at the highest level in American command. It's got, it's very it's, it's very interesting. It's revealing and a surprise to the to the uninitiated, perhaps.
2: Yeah, it is revealing, and, it, and it, what it shows you is at that point in American history, the what was called the military professionals or whatever is, is kind of open to just one sort of person. And that's, that's white guys. Um, and so you've got a smallness to it in that respect. You also have a, just a physical smallness to it in that most of the time U S military hadn't been very large or, or well-funded uh, civil war and World War I notwithstanding. So what I often say, especially about the army uh, in World War II It was large enough to have a cadre of really good military professionals to help win the war, but not so large as to be just sort of racked by careerism and careerists, Um, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it is it's it's a very intimate kind of setting. And when you think about Halsey and MacArthur. You know, I mean, they are coming it, from this military legacy.
0: And Was it respectable to be um, socially respectable to join the services? Because in Britain, you know, being an officer, sort of second son stuff, isn't it, Jim? It, it, yeah,
1: third son priest, second son military, first son mm. runs the estate.
0: Yeah, whatever whatever it is, yeah. But it's socially respectable. You know, the, the social structure in London very much, especially the Navy, is extremely respectable. Is it respectable or is it the sort of thing people, kind of odd people too, if you see what you I mean. Yeah. Is it something that also, is
1: it something that's lost prestige in the, in the years of isolationism and,
2: and yeah, the kind of yeah. reducing the army oh. post-First World War and all the rest of it? In that era, the 20s and 30s, it's not very respectable. Um, and in the, kind of, in the kind of elitist circles in which you would have run, uh, in the kind of people you might have encountered as, a, as an army officer, they would have most of them would have been like, what are you doing there? You could be on Wall Street or you could be in a yeah. law firm somewhere. or You could be running a company or you're doing something other than this. And and uh, so it's really interesting. And you know, at various times in American history, it just kind of depends when we're looking at it uh, in terms of the attitude of people towards soldiering, uh, sometimes way off the scale like Civil War or World War II or something, and other times it's, you know, very much looked down upon like the isolationist period, but also the post-Vietnam period too, in which a 1973 Harris poll revealed that, uh, that military personnel were viewed only above garbage collectors in terms of public esteem. You know, at that point. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, isn't that mind blowing? It's like Yeah, isn't it?
1: But okay, but listen, this is what one of the things that I'm thinking about. You know, MacArthur is this kind of almost an almost has been. In, in, in 1941, you know, he's retired as chief of staff. He should have been put out to graze. You know, in that way, he's kind of a bit like Wavell. Wavell's retired and wants to be a Cambridge academic and a Cambridge don and then gets pulled back. Or he's a bit like Tiny Ironside in that, you know, Tiny Ironside is is the um, chief of the Imperial General Staff at the start of the war, um, but then gets sidelined, you know, very, very quickly because he's one of the guys that, you know, those people that are kind of running the show at the start tend to kind of... Get kicked out pretty quickly. And yet MacArthur, despite his age, despite the fact that he's he's already kind of, you know, past retirement age, becomes this mega figure at a time when every other comparison I can think of is actually falling by the wayside. And you've got the point that that, you know, he's grown up in, yeah. in yeah, Exactly. And he's grown up in the kind of, you know, he's earned his spurs in the noughties of the of the 20th century. And then the First World War. And then the 20s and 30s. So he's kind of behind the times in terms of, you know, modern warfare, technology, air, sea, integration, all those kind of things. And obviously the fall of the Philippines is a complete catastrophe. Uh, lots of Americans get killed. It's it's a humiliation. You know, the Bataan death march, Corregidor, et cetera, et cetera. And yet he comes out with his his reputation enhanced. And that's quite an achievement, isn't it? Compared to literally oh, everyone else in his situation. Yeah. You'd have thought that would be well, it.
2: He's because there's two sides to this of why this happens. Um and, and what I think is so funny about it, MacArthur portray constantly portrayed himself as the outsider, the outsider. There were always people in Washington plotting against him, or you know, whatever it would be. But actually, when you really look at his life and career, he's the ultimate insider. Obviously, you know, being the son of a general certainly gives you a head start. Um, his mother though, is one of the key players, especially after the, the untimely death of his father and after his brother's death, his mother is constantly working the, the army hierarchy for the betterment of Doug's career. I mean, I found letters, you know, like to Pershing and all this kind of stuff. And so he's got that going for him. And he's also very media savvy, um, at a time when that's becoming really important. And so MacArthur understands a lot about image and what I would say cult of personality, and and that more than anything is what saves him. But where does
1: that come from? Because he's stuck in the Philippines. I mean, how, how you know where's that coming from?
2: Yeah, what but that? that's the central part. That's the central part of the American uh, you know activity or story in the early part of World War II. I mean, Europe first may be the policy, but that's got to take a long time to amp up. And and it's hard to wrap your mind around the U-boat war that's going on at that point beyond just the headlines you would read. And especially if you're a Midwesterner, you know, how are you going to care about what's going on at Cape Hatteras with the U-boat sinkings or something? So in MacArthur's case, and this is a ver- another very American tendency, uh, the American people needed a hero, and he's willing to be that hero through the cultivation because of his his egomania that i alluded to earlier he's very comfortable with the idea of all his communiques any story coming out of his command centering around him and that becomes the sort of hook around which is built this idea that he's just doing an amazing thing one here's one here's one of the thing the, the myths that also comes out of the philippines campaign that the, the, the phil-american forces are just vastly outnumbered and overwhelmed actually they outnumbered the japanese about a, about two to one Um, so that whole thing is just absolutely absurd now you know they don't control the air and the sea and obviously that matters a lot but they had some things going for them and it's a monumentally screwed up campaign by macarthur on a lot of levels but he's able to kind of cultivate a different image so I, i think that's really where it comes from
0: let's just hold that thought we'll go for a very quick break Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, uh, James Holland and John McManus. And, Jim, you were just
2: about to leap in And there. it's going to be a gem.
1: Well, I've got, two, a gem. I've got two thoughts. My first thought is I don't think we're going to cover <laughs> MacArthur in one episode, and I think we just might have to extend it to two. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. we'll leave it. We'll leave him. So the, the first one is is the kind of sort of gets to Australia. The second one is the fight back. But my point was going to be is that... On one level, he's kind of behind the times. He's kind of, you know, he's a has-been, you, you know, he's already been chief of staff, all the rest of it. And he's come on and he's made a hash of things in, in you know, when the, when the Japanese um, attack. But he obviously learns pretty quickly. And, and, and this is one of the things I think is remarkable. And, and in sharp contrast to those senior commanders in, let's say, the French army, for example, in 1940, who don't learn quick enough. For someone his age he actually embraces modernity and technology very very quickly and boy does he get his act together but but and that I think is remarkable because if he was really bad as a general he wouldn't have survived despite his ego despite his connections despite his mum
2: writing letters he probably wouldn't have because he would he would have suffered more defeats because he would have kept screwing up in the same way now I think it's a good point James because it's like and I think that the best way to, to sort of get a lens into that is he's open minded enough to to really start thinking about the modernity and and through air and sea power. And so when he starts to, to, you know, have this rapport with Halsey, it makes him understand just how important sea power is going to be for everything he wants to do, which is, of course, to get back to the Philippines. He's had a problematic relationship with Louis Brereton, who, of course, will be around a long time in World War II and a lot of different places and George Brett. And he's thought uh, the, the army air forces are useless uh, initially. But once George Kenny comes into play, Kenny makes him see the importance of air power. And so you're right. Jim, he has this kind of flexibility. He's open minded. Oh, he's open minded in that respect. Yeah. And, and he will adjust. And I, I think that that is one of his better qualities.
0: But, but, but John, I mean, the, the US Army is renowned for firing people. <laughs> At that time. At that time, hire and fire is is part of the way things get, get done. You know, if you screw up, you you go home. He doesn't, how is he able to basically avoid that?
2: I think it's because, in you know, in part because he's been chief of staff and there's a different dynamic there. Marshall knows that firing him is going to be very different than firing your average commander. Because he's been at that high level, because he has this, Now, political following that eventuates from that cult of personality. There are guys. There's in the spring of '42. There are people renaming, you know, parks after him, post offices. People are naming their kids Douglas MacArthur or something. And so, if he well, listen, I was in Washington.
1: I was in Washington DC last week, the end of last week, and I went down MacArthur Drive or something. Someplace mm -hmm. that had been renamed after Douglas MacArthur.
2: And, and it's probably a legacy of that time, I would guess. I don't know, lot, wherever you were. because it, And so this is a political component uh, that's going to have blowback against the Roosevelt government, especially because most of the, the, the sort of political cults of personality around him tends to be from the right, from the Republican side, from the pro-China lobby, the pro-Asia, sort of anti-Europe first people. And so if you fire MacArthur, it's going to be very different than just dispensing with Lloyd Friedendahl or something like that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is a guy who's very politically connected. And so it's going to matter on many different levels. And that's, of course, also why Roosevelt orders him out of the Philippines, because I think he's concerned it'll be very devastating to morale if MacArthur becomes a POW because of the way he's been built up.
1: And so he leaves it to Matthew
2: Wainwright instead. Yeah, he's too big, but but
1: I mean, you you were saying that he makes a whole hash of things when when the Japan the Japanese attack the Philippines. I mean, talk us talk us through that. I mean, what what, what does he do wrong, and what, why is it that you know, like Singapore and Malaya, the Philippines just roll over as well?
2: So he's had a tough time, you know, even building an army by 1941, and the War Department is desperately pouring in whatever U uni- S. units they can on the eve of war, and so the American presence has been built up to be about 25 percent of the manpower or something like that. Um, but the biggest biggest problem he has, the biggest mistake, I would argue, is he dispenses what was called War Plan Orange, which, which basically said, all right, the Japanese are going to get the jump on us in the Philippines and they're going to get ashore somewhere. Look at all these islands. Look at all these coasts. We can't. Defend it all. So what we'll do is we'll retreat to Bataan. We will bleed them there while the fleet comes and fights its way to us in a decisive, decisive battle, and then we will, you know, ultimately hang on to Manila and win this war. Uh,
1: and 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 just say, so, Bataan is this little kind of peninsula that sort of hangs out opposite the Manila Bay, isn't exactly. It? Is that
2: right? Yeah, and it's like really uh, a lot of high ground, really good defensible ground. So that makes total sense. But on the, but before the war, he decides, no, we're going to defend at the coastline. We're going to be able to just stop the Japanese in their tracks. we don't want them getting Philippine soil. Of course, the army can't begin to do that. And, you know, it fails. And and uh, and so the consequence of this isn't just that you have to adjust and remove your army and fight a different way. The consequence is logistical because the army's logistical nodes were spread out all over versus concentrated in Bataan. So what that means to you and me as a soldier, we're on half and quarter rations by the time we get to Bataan. So we're never really defeated tactically. Uh, The Japanese make a hash of their own in this campaign. They don't fight very well, and they're not all that well led, but the army is just starving. And that means we're devoting most of our time to to food.
1: Well, we talk an awful lot about schwerpunks, don't we, and concentration of force, but sometimes
2: you need concentration of defense, don't you? Yeah, you do. And I I think in this case, uh, it would have made total sense because the Japanese would have had to come after that Phil-American force and neutralize it, otherwise they'd never control Manila. Uh, And, of course, you have Corregidor, too, which is an island that's out in the bay, and that's MacArthur's headquarters, and it's a tough nut to crack, much less these other garrisons that are spread all over the place farther south, like on Mindanao or wherever. I mean, no one – I mean, you could argue to this day that that no central authority can really control the Philippines. Um, I don't know that the Americans really did as a colonial overseer. The Japanese certainly didn't. Uh, and it leads, oh, of course, a lot of guerrilla operations against them and all that. So, there, you know, Jim, you were talking earlier about MacArthur's adjustment. MacArthur really, I think, fixes on to the, the, the potency of guerrilla war uh, once these Filipino guerrilla units start to come into play. And some of them have escaped U.S. troops who are part of them and some don't. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I didn't but know MacArthur. That. Yeah, MacArthur's headquarters is working very closely with them You know, by the end of 42 and into 43, as closely as you can, to help supply them, to have communication with them, political support. Um, all of that kind of stuff is going on, and MacArthur's headquarters has taken the lead. And I, I don't think that, uh, that you can look at any other theater command that's quite that deeply involved in irregular operations as, as was MacArthur's.
0: Why wow. did he change his plan? Why, why did he shift?
2: Because he 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 has this idea that Filipino soil is sacred, um, that that it's defeatist to think about warplan orange and just retreating to Batan and ceding you know any of that ground to uh, to the Japanese. And as he put it, this is, <laughs> I, I hope this, I hope this analogy lands. But this is the way he put it in a in an interview with a journalist. He said, "My strategy is hit them where they ain't." So he was using a baseball term, and 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 I, that's always struck me it was like wait a minute the very point you're making undoes your whole undoes your whole strategy because he's he's trying to say that he's going to hit the japanese wherever they are somehow but when you say hit them where they ain't the japanese are going to have right. gaps and they're going to hit it where you ain't and you they're going to get ashore so i i don't understand what he was talking about there that was just really odd statement
1: and do, and do you think do you think this is Okay, so this is partly kind of hubristic. This, you know, all Philippine soil is sacred, and all this kind of stuff. But obviously, do, do do you think there's um do you think there's a kind of uh, American or his own personal su- sense of superiority that the you know the Japanese aren't going to you know he's not going to be defeated by the Japanese because they're not going to be good enough. I mean, is is there kind of racism there against the Japanese? I mean, w- w- why why this confidence that he can see them off?
2: No, I don't think it's necessarily anti-Japanese racism. I think it's overconfidence in his own command and right. in himself. Um, That he, MacArthur, can make this sort of grand difference there. But I also do think it is a kind of an allegiance to the Philippines and its people to not abandon what could be millions of them to Japanese occupation, at least for a time. Um, I don't know that MacArthur is psychologically able to to accept that. Um, and I, I really do think that that's a factor there. And he also, he's not a fan of the, the, the sort of War Department Washington strategists, uh, who he associates with those who have been against him all this time. MacArthur's a very paranoid guy on some levels. And so he's going to rebel. Well, yeah, was, he, he's just going
0: to ask that. Does he fuel a lot of how he feels by being paranoid? Is he, is he driven by uh, what he thinks others think of him and all that sort of stuff. Is that sort of meat to keep yeah. him going? Because there are <laughs> people like that, aren't there? They're, they're all out to get me. And that's that's why you propel yeah. yourself, isn't it? Rather than necessarily yeah. your own talents or, or your own objectives. It's what you perceive your enemies to be. And that these enemies are really the people he's working with rather than the people he's fighting Right.
2: And I, I sometimes joke that I, I'm not sure who he thought the real enemy was, Washington yeah. policymakers or the Japanese. And um, <laughs> yeah. And so the, the interesting thing about MacArthur the you've got this monumental ego, and there is a kind of superiority complex on on some levels because uh, he had this sort of eidetic memory, and he was certainly courageous and, and a fine soldier, but he has he's just monstrously insecure um, as as a person too, and and so you don't often see that if you're arrogant, usually, you know, you don't think of insecurity as part of that, but, it, but he he is, and so. I think that that's partly what's what's driving him throughout the war too.
0: But it's p- peculiar because as you describe he's got plenty to be arrogant about. You know, I mean, he, he
2: does. He's he's a fine soldier on many levels. And, and 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 on some levels he's a really good human being. And what I mean by that, you know, in his personal dealings with people, he's very um you know, very polite, very courtly, very considerate you know, like I don't know if you've ever seen a movie The Emperor is General with Tommy Jones Tommy Lee Jones as MacArthur. well I've read the
1: book. The I've read the book that um The book is fascinating by, the book by Jim is Webb. Brilliant. Jim Webb, yeah. It is who is a Vietnam who's a, who is a Vietnam veteran and wrote Fields of Fire. Yeah. I don't know if you've read that, which is just Right absolutely right. superb book. Uh, I think it's a novel. An incredible isn't it? book. It is a novel than, based
2: on his own
1: experience. Yeah, Webb
2: was a Marine at I Corps. I think he got the Navy Cross and it's the book so he the Emperor up, General. Incredible was book. It? And wasn't what? he a sort
1: of assistant secretary to the Navy or something like that? He was. Didn't he was he, secretary he had the of the same Navy. Pl- he was secretary of the Navy, was he? Okay. He was secretary of the Navy under Reagan. So I met him because in a former life when I was doing book mm. PR, we published The Emperor's General. And I loved that book. I thought it was an amazing I novel. too. And he came it's over to the UK book. to promote. And so I had a kind of a wow. whole week hanging out with Jim Webb. And he was he, he was fantastic. <laughs> but that book is absolutely stunning. But I, what I remember very keenly about it is, and, and I've read subsequently, is, is that relationship with Matthew Wainwright, who's this general who gets effectively sacrificed, isn't he? He's the guy who gets left behind. What, someone's got to stay behind, uh, and it's Wainwright, yeah, isn't it?
2: It is Wainwright. Yeah, the, the other thing before, I want to talk about Wainwright before we get into that. The, the Emperor's General movie, Tommy Lee Jones portrays MacArthur, and you if you had tried to sit down and say... Let's try and put together the worst portrayal of MacArthur in terms of how he really was. I mean, I don't know how you could have done more. He's got him like (laughs) throwing F-bombs every other minute. MacArthur hardly ever cursed. It never did. You know, he was he was just not that way. You know, so the other thing, too, about Wainwright, they had known each other for a long time. They were both military legacies. Wainwright's father was a uh, was a soldier. His uh, uncle was a a, a, uh, naval officer who was killed fighting pirates. So Wainwright, unlike most West Pointers, has a, a tribute to him in the, the at the Naval Academy, and uh, to his uncle. And so Wainwright had been around the Army a long time, and was highly respected. And so when MacArthur leaves, he's he's the overall commander who then has to deal with this mess, um, and it's <laughs> it's just traumatic on so many levels for for Jonathan Wainwright.
0: Yeah. Well, should we should we. Take a moment then to say that's the end of this first part of a maybe two parts. It may it may sprawl further. Like MacArthur's career, it may it will return. <laughs> um, we will we, we will um, we will see you uh, next time. Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, John McManus, and James Holland. See you soon.
2: So long.